John 5, 1 to 18. This is God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. Uh, you might remember C.S. Lewis famously saying that Jesus Christ is either a liar, lunatic or Lord. And what he was saying was that Jesus can't simply be a good moral teacher because of the serious claims that he made to be the son of God. He can't just be a good moral teacher. If he wasn't God, he was leading a whole bunch of people astray. Nor can he simply be uh, someone that we offer a certain uh, portion of our life to. He is either a liar or a lunatic, or he is Lord, which means he has complete dominion and authority over every single thing in this world and over every single portion of our lives. I say this because John's gospel is here to continuously demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, this is John's point in John 20, where he says these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So therefore, every passage that we go through in John's gospel, even the nice familiar stories, they are actually demanding a response from us. They are demanding us to confess our allegiance to Christ as Lord, as Messiah, hence the name Christ. And so as we see more of these stories, they are meant to reveal more of who Jesus is and then demand our allegiance to him as we follow him because of who he is. Every story is demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ. So he is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. There's, there's nothing in between. As C.S. Lewis also famously said, Christianity is either of no importance or of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be 
is moderately important. You can't just have something that's moderately important. Likewise, our Christian lives can't just have Jesus taking up a portion of them. It's either of, he is either of no importance to us or he is everything. He is of infinite importance. And these passages are going to highlight this for us as to why he is of infinite importance and why he demands our allegiance and how we must follow him in light of that. So this passage, we're going to break up into three portions of one meal, you might say. Um, three particular portions. The middle, more like a main, will be the, the larger portion. Our first is looking specifically at how Jesus restores debilitating sickness to new health. And then the second will be looking at how Jesus then works to call some of these restored people, in fact, all of these restored people, but synonymous with those who are restored. Jesus works to call people to true Sabbath rest, hence the passage in Hebrews 4 that Tobias read out. And then lastly, Jesus calls people to true Sabbath rest because he is God. Pretty simple. So the first portion here, Jesus restores debilitating sickness to new health. Look at verse one. We read here that Jesus heads back up to Jerusalem from Galilee because another feast is at hand. And he goes down to this pool called Bethesda, which would have been quite popular at that time, because what we see here is that uh, apparently people were being healed by being in this pool. So it became quite a superstitious place of healing where a lot of uh, people, not just a few, we read here in verse three, a multitude of invalids, of blind, lame and paralyzed people who had diseases, who were sick. They would flock down there to try and be healed. Now, astute readers of their Bible would notice something here after verse three. We don't have a verse four at least if you have a, a good translation, likely in the ESV, if you have that, uh, it will skip from verse three to verse five. And so if I can just make a quick comment on that as to why that is the case, though I and hopefully we as a church hold uh, unashamedly to the inerrancy of scripture that God's word is perfect and infallible, uh, here we have a verse missing because this verse four here uh, which you might have a footnote, it talks about how um, an angel would come and stir up the waters and that's how people got healed. Now, um, it's likely that that was probably a, a marginal gloss from a scribe later on. What would happen is that scribes would be writing down uh, from the original manuscripts, copying it down. That's why we have our Bible today because we have literally thousands of manuscripts uh, from uh, after the original sources, but certainly within a very close time frame of the original manuscripts and scribes would copy them down. And sometimes a scribe would put in the margin, a sort of note, like you might put in your Bible, a uh, note next to a particular verse that's expounding it. And it seems likely that what happened at some point is that a scribe had put in the margin uh, that the belief was that these waters were healing because an angel would come and stir up the waters. And then the next scribe just copied that as the actual verse. Now, here's why this shouldn't cause us to start to question the reliability of Scripture. It's actually because we have so many resources at our hand to 
uh, see what God's word actually is, that we can have confidence in the reliability of scripture. So there are passages in your Bible, we'll get to one in John chapter eight, the story of the um, adulteress um, and the woman caught in adultery, which uh, most people believe that likely wasn't uh, in original scripture. And the reason why is, as I said, because we have so many resources, literally thousands of manuscripts that we can piece together. And it is amazing when you look at the manuscripts written by various people over time that still have in the high 90s percentage wise consistency all throughout scripture. So as we have all of these manuscripts, we can begin to see when things were added in over time that shouldn't be in there, we can see what God's word actually is. That's why we can have confidence in the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture because God has left us with so many resources at our hand. So that's just a side note. If you're wondering why we don't have a verse four, it's because as the footnote uh, says, at least in my Bible, this uh, was likely added in later on. So if we can skip over that from verse three to verse five, as our Bibles lead us to, We read, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He is one of the main characters of this story. This disabled man who had been with his disability for 38 years. Now it's likely, at least I think it's fair to assume this could have been some form of paralysis. Because we know that when he responds to Jesus, when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The man says, well, I have no one to pick me up and take me there. We know that there were many uh, paralytics here. So this man, I think it's fair to assume, was probably a paralytic. If not, someone who was quite severely disabled, an invalid. And he had been that way for 38 years. Now, just think, I mean, a lot of us haven't even lived 38 years yet. Think uh, how you would be and what kind of state of mind you would be to be an invalid for 38 years. This is beyond grief. I mean, this is just a way of life for him now. He has just accepted this state of hopelessness. You see that because in the passage here, when he responds to Jesus, it's like he doesn't even assume that he can ever get in the water. If he believes that the waters can heal him, it's like he doesn't even assume that he's going to get there. He says to Jesus, well, when it happens, no one can take me there. So this man has had 38 years of debilitating sickness. And then he sits here, possibly watching people get healed deep down, knowing that he's never actually going to get healed. He just has to sit there to watch the people get healed. Now, this numb realm of hopelessness that this man is in has all of the ingredients for Jesus to display his glory. This is ripe for Jesus to come in. So in verse six, we see Jesus coming in. He sees the man lying there and we read that he knew he had already been there a long time. Time. Now, I just want to stop on this point here in verse six of Jesus knowing that he had been there a long time. I think this is a point to meditate upon. This can't simply be that Jesus uh, had wandered by earlier that day and had seen the man and so knew he had been there for a long time that day. I don't think it's also uh, that Jesus, because he would have gone to Jerusalem before, um, this man was probably well known. I mean, 38 years of debilitating sickness. He's probably well known. I don't think this is just Jesus uh, knowing that old, you know, uh, 
paralytic Joe has been down by the pool for 38 years. I think this is a divine knowledge. This is a divine knowledge from a divine man who knows this invalid. Jesus knows his 38 years of suffering. He knows he had been there. He knows every single day of this man that he had been there. He knows that because Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all things were created. All of us included. As the God-man, he knows every detail of our lives, sickness and suffering included. This is the God-man walking amongst these invalids, knowing exactly what they are feeling. All of their suffering, all of their sickness. More than that, more than just a divine knowledge because he is creator, Jesus knows sickness, and here's the point to meditate upon, because he entered into sickness, he entered into suffering, he entered into this world, this realm of the flesh. Hebrews 4.15, just a few verses after the passage Tobias read out, says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that word for weakness in Hebrews 4.15 is the exact same word here for sickness. It's saying we do not have a high priest. Let me put it in the positive. We have a high priest. We have a savior who can sympathize with our sickness, with our infirmities, with our weakness. Why? Because he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He entered into all of the suffering of this world without ever being contaminated by sin, without ever taking sin uh, on in himself as a result of sin. So Jesus knows sickness and suffering as someone who both has authority over sickness and suffering, as someone who is the creator, but also as the one who took suffering on in our place. So when we read this really simple line here of Jesus seeing this man and knowing that he had already been there a long time, we shouldn't gloss over that. That should be awfully comforting to us. Jesus knows all of our sickness and suffering and he upholds and sustains those who do suffer. He upholds and sustains those who are in debilitating sickness because he has entered into it and because he is Lord of all. Now let's come back to the passage here. After Jesus asks, uh, after Jesus sees this invalid, he then asks him, do you want to be healed? The word is literally healthy. Do you want to be made healthy? That's what Jesus is saying to this man. After 38 years of sickness, you can imagine what his answer would be. Well, of course, of course I want to be healthy. Of course I want to be made right. At least you assume that would be the answer. The invalid says, well, I have no one to put me into the pool. Whenever this thing starts to happen, no one comes and picks me up. And so I miss my chance. So this man clearly does not understand just who it is who is actually offering healing. He does not understand who it is who is offering restoration to him. His mind simply goes to what is natural to him, what is natural in this state of debilitating sickness. And that is, well, if I'm going to be healed at all, it's going to be the way everyone else is doing it. It's going to be through the pool. No single, no man is going to be able to heal me and Jesus, very clearly, here in verse uh, 8, redirects this man 
to the power of his word, which we saw last week, where Jesus can speak a word that is not bound by physical proximity. He can speak a word and life comes. Jesus redirects this man back to the power of his word and he commands him again. It is in the imperative, it is a command. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly... This man who had been disabled for 38 years, don't miss the reality of this, decades of hopelessness in his illness, and all of a sudden in one moment he is healed. He gets up, takes up his bed, and he walks. Jesus restores debilitating sickness to new health. Now, we will see, as part of what I mentioned earlier, the reality of John's gospel not simply being nice stories for us, but actually stories that are demanding a response from us, that are calling us to see who Jesus is, who this God-man is. And all of these stories uh, that display Jesus' healing power, display his authority over sickness, is actually partly meant to press home the reality for us to realize that we have a debilitating sickness, a debilitating disease called sin. And it corrupts us. Sin corrupts us. We all have it. It is debilitating. The human race has had it for far longer than 38 years. We are all born into it. And the only means of restoration is Christ. That is it. And how many people in our society, how many people throughout history follow the pattern of this man here? When the offer of healing and restoration comes, they simply turn to either what is natural to them or superstitious means. Just like this man here, God himself is standing in front of him, offering healing and restoration. And he looks away from the Savior and says, well, I can't go to the pool. It's not working out, but but that's the only way that I'm going to be healed. How many people in our society, rather than look to the Messiah, they look to medication? How many People, rather than drink from the rivers of living water that Jesus offers to the Samaritan woman, they look for refreshment through some vacation, through a change of scenery, through a new job, change my circumstances, that's how I'll be made healthy again. And the only true means of spiritual health for the soul that is corrupted by the debilitating disease of sin is restoration through Christ alone. Jesus restores debilitating sickness to new health. This should be a warning for us, particularly for those who have been restored to Christ to then, as an ongoing way, not look for continued restoration through natural or superstitious means. Again, through a change of circumstance, through a new job, whatever it may be, these things that might come about and are wonderful, but they are not going to restore us. They are not going to nourish us. Christ is our nourishment. We turn to the God of heaven and earth as the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. That's our first point. Jesus restores debilitating sickness to new health. Secondly, this is part of how we Uh, see who Jesus is and how we, as readers, must respond. Jesus here is working to call 
people to true Sabbath rest. This is a bit of an underlying theme that we will see through John's gospel. If you'll notice, uh, many of the things that Jesus does happens on the Sabbath. We will see again in John chapter 9, another healing, the miraculous healing of the blind man that happens again on a Sabbath day. There is a bit of a theme to this. So from verses 9, the second half, through to verse 17, we see the main issue here. And then all that is wrong with the religious system of the day. So Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And then immediately this restored man is accused of breaking the Sabbath. Imagine that 38 years of not being able to walk, we can assume. And then the moment you walk, uh, instantly they're demanding, why are you walking about? This is uh, quite ironic here. So Jesus heals. On the Sabbath, immediately these religious leaders, the Jews, which is John's way of describing really uh, all that is wrong with the Judaism of the time, the Jewish leaders, they say that this man should not be taking up his bed and walking. Now, there is no law within Scripture that prevents anyone from taking up a bed and walking. What had happened here is the Jewish rabbis over uh, many, many years had put together a list a commentary, the Mishnah it's known as, as to how we actually understand uh, prohibitions that God gives like not working on the Sabbath. And so they had um, categorized 39 different types of work that you were not supposed to do on the Sabbath. One of those was simply carrying a load from one place to another. Didn't matter what you were doing, just carrying a load from one place to another was illegal. That was seen as breaking the Sabbath. So to demonstrate the terrible state of affairs in Jerusalem, Jesus heals this man and their immediate response isn't to marvel at the miracle that has just taken place. It is to ask, why is this man breaking the Sabbath? I was thinking of this through the week. I think it's kind of like a morgue worker, someone who works in a morgue with dead bodies. There's a dead body in the freezer for days and days and days, all of a sudden the dead body comes to life, opens the door, and the morgue worker turns to him and says, hey, close the freezer door. You're gonna waste all of the energy. Meanwhile, this dead person has just been brought to life. It's absolutely absurd that their direction is to why this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years is all of a sudden carrying a bed and walking. So look at this interaction here from verse 10. <clears throat> the Jews come to him. They say, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. The man answers, well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Again, rather than the focus being on the man who miraculously healed, the focus is on the man who told someone to take up a bed and walk. That's the focus of the leaders. Now, we will come back to the conversation between Jesus and the man, the second interaction that we see mostly in verse 14. But if we can just skip ahead to verses 16 and 17, where we see a bit of the interaction with Jesus and these Jewish leaders who are uh, trying to find him because he is, um, he was the one who commanded this man to break the Sabbath as far as they are concerned. And Jesus says to them in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, this is 
an astounding statement. Jesus saying, my father is working until now and I am working. The very clear implication that the Jews get immediately, we'll see in verse 18, is that Jesus is making himself equal with God. Jesus is saying that he is equal with the God who ordained the Sabbath. My father is working and Jesus is saying, in the same way my father is working, I'm working. What is this work that Jesus is speaking of? Because we know that clearly Jesus, as a good Jewish man, as someone who lived under the law in order to fulfill the law, he wouldn't have worked in a way that would have broken God's Sabbath requirement. As far as God uh, was concerned, he kept the law in every way, never sinned, never transgressed in anything. But this work that Jesus is speaking of is not a work that any man can do. It is a work that only the God-man can do. By saying that just as the Father is working, so am I, Jesus is clearly connecting his work with the ongoing work of God the Father. So although we know God rested from creation, and this is something the Jews at the time understood, even though he rested from creation, God continues in his sustaining and redemptive work. He continues to uphold the universe. If God stopped working, if he rested from all of his work, then the universe would implode. If God stopped from his redemptive work, then nothing would be happening in terms of people coming to the Lord and people growing in sanctification. So Jesus saying that just as the Father is working, so he is working, is him very clearly saying that this work, this work that Jesus is doing, is the same sustaining and redemptive work that has been going on from the creation of the world. This is the work that Jesus is involved in. And this is what demonstrates that Jesus is working to call people to true Sabbath rest. This is where we're, we're getting this from. See, because um, in a moment we'll focus on uh, why Jesus is actually God, like the very clear implication of that, which shouldn't be that uh, tricky for us. But here, let's just look at the underlying theme. If Jesus is working on the Sabbath, if he's conducting a work that is not sinful at all, if he is working just as the Father is working, then he's doing something on the Sabbath by healing this man that we ought to respond to. And this is very related to the passage that Tobias read out. See, because the Sabbath is meant to be pointing us forward to our day of salvation as a type of rest. The Sabbath both is a time of reflection upon the past, of reorientation to God, but it's also reorienting us to have this hopeful expectation of our true day of rest, of the true Sabbath day. So in Hebrews 4, we read the author saying, there remains a Sabbath rest. Remember, he's taking the example of the Israelites who died off in the wilderness and saying there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So Sabbath rest becomes a future hope for all God's people to enter into. It's pointing us forward to something. And this rest is only found through sinful people being restored to health in Jesus Christ. That's the only pathway to true rest. The restoration that comes 
through Christ. We think of Jesus in Matthew 11, wandering around and saying, crying out to people, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burden. Come to me, all you who are working, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. This is part of his redemptive work that he is performing in our story here. He is calling people to the purpose of the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, healing people, restoring people in order to call people toward few, um, true future Sabbath, toward the fulfillment of the Sabbath, which you will experience in the new heavens and new earth, the true day of rest. So Jesus heals this man from debilitating sickness to restored health on the Sabbath. And as I mentioned, he'll do the exact same thing in John chapter 9, where he heals the blind man, and that happens on the Sabbath day. It's like Jesus is challenging people to really see the deeper meaning of what the Sabbath is pointing us to, to find rest in him, in the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, just keep that idea in your minds as we now come back to the second interaction between Jesus and this man who is healed. So in verse 14, the man can't find Jesus. Jesus finds him. And he says, that is Jesus to the man, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, why does Jesus tell him to stop sinning lest anything worse happen? Why does Jesus say that? Stop sinning lest anything worse happen. Well, one possibility, which I think is highly likely that a lot of commentators would agree on, is that although a lot of the time we are told not to assume that suffering is a direct result of one's sin, in fact, Jesus will go on to say that in John chapter 9, where the disciples are asking, well, why is this man born blind? Was it the sin of his mother or father? And Jesus says it wasn't because of anything. It was that the work of God may be revealed. Though that's the case, the language here certainly suggests that this might be an exception, that this could have been the result of an ongoing sin. Certainly that the language that this is an ongoing sin that's related to the suffering and now that he is healthy, this man must not continue in that sin or he will be far worse off than his 38 years of suffering. Now, I actually think that might be a bit of a side point. So with that said, I think the clear point that Jesus makes, think of Luke 13, whenever suffering comes, it isn't a time for us to start to analyze people's lives and work out why, well, this is because you told that lie the other week. Now this is happening. It's obviously not a time for us to analyze what's happening in people's lives, but rather it is a time for each of us to individually reflect with a repentant heart upon our own lives. That's what we must do whenever suffering comes. We must have repentant hearts. We must grieve with those who grieve going through suffering. And we must likewise constantly have repentant hearts. Like Jesus says to the people who come to him in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will likewise end up like this. And here's the thing, a repentant heart should lead to moral reformation, which I think is one of the underlying themes here. A repentant heart should lead to moral reformation. This is part of our response to Jesus offering true Sabbath rest. One of the points is that moral reformation 
living in a way that is consistent with the morals that God gives, living consistently with God's word. Moral reformation necessarily follows Christ's restoration. So see the picture here. The man is healed. He's made well. Jesus comes back to him and he now calls him to a life of moral reformation. He says, stop sinning or something way worse will happen to you. Now that you've been restored, stop sinning. Forsake sin, which synonymous with that is to live consistently with God's word. It's not like you can forsake sin and not follow Jesus. The only way to forsake sin is to cling to Christ, to follow him. Now, the story of this man here remains ambiguous as to whether indeed he was reformed. So look at verse 15. We read after Jesus warning him with quite a stern warning to stop sinning or something worse would happen. We read that the man goes away and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, this may not suggest that he continued in sin. It's certainly not the best picture. I mean, we'll see the man who is uh, healed in John 9 ends up concluding that, you know, Jesus is the Christ. But this man here goes straight back to the Jewish leaders. And it seems like maybe he's trying to sort of take the heat off of him. I mean, he's got the Jews after him because he's been breaking the Sabbath. So it seems natural if he's trying to get himself out of the problem to basically come back to the Jews and say, hey, it was that guy. Stop looking at me now. Go find him. It's Jesus. He's the one you want. He could have been testifying to Jesus as the Christ. We don't know. But if anything, it seems like this man seems to continue in dullness toward Jesus, in a sense of dullness, not realizing who this man is who has healed him. And here's where we have to heed a strong warning. Here's where we begin to apply this to ourselves. See, experiencing the kind of restoration that Jesus offers in his gift of salvation. For those of us here who have truly come to know Jesus Christ and who have been restored to new life in Christ, this is something that ought to promote a new life. This is something that ought to promote moral reformation within us, which is something that we usually throw off as sort of legalistic in our society. We don't like the, even the language of morality. We use it in, in a negative way. But it's quite impossible to read God's word without concluding, wow, God really cares about my morals. God really cares about how I live. He really cares about me living faithfully and in obedience to God's word. So therefore, in this picture of Jesus offering true rest, there is this warning of neglecting that rest by staying in dullness or staying in disobedience. It's very consistent with the passage we read out in Hebrews. If we come back to that passage in Hebrews 4, after giving the example of the Israelites not entering God's rest through disobedience, the author says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter that rest. Why? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's the warning. That's the warning we must heed. Let us strive. Let us who have found a foretaste of rest in Christ strive to enter that final day of rest. Lest any of us fall away by the same sort of disobedience. 
by the same sort of dullness. Striving toward that day is synonymous with our obedience to God's word, with our pursuit of holiness. That's there. And these are real warnings from the author of Hebrews saying, do not fall away like the Israelites. Don't fall away through disobedience. Rather strive toward that day, toward that day of rest. These are why we get the warning. So this man here in our story, the invalid of 38 years, he experiences the restorative power of Jesus and yet he receives the warning immediately afterwards to stop sinning lest something worse happens. Likewise for us who have experienced the restorative power of Christ, we receive the same warning. I wonder if this is where the author of Hebrews is sort of has this in the background of his mind. We receive the same warning after we have experienced the restorative power of Jesus to forsake sin or like Paul in Colossians to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put that away as we strive toward the day of rest. So Jesus is continuing this redemptive work on the Sabbath to call his followers to take up his rest by ceasing from their works and in receiving that rest in Christ we now strive in holiness toward that final day of rest now last point and very briefly this will only be a few minutes finally in verse 18 Jesus does all of this Jesus works to bring us toward true Sabbath rest precisely because he is God probably not a controversial point here in our church but indeed something that many people around us in our communities might struggle with this is the clear implication the jews conclude this they are uh, likely livid because he is making himself equal with god the fact that jesus says just as the father is working so i'm working very clearly they conclude okay this man is saying he is god he's equal with god there's no way that can happen so we've seen that Jesus is claiming divine status. He is continuing the sustaining and redemptive work that has been going on since the creation of the world. He is merely doing this in the flesh on earth. Therefore, Jesus cannot break the Sabbath because he is Lord of the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath. It's quite ironic again. It's like the Jews are furious with the creator of the Sabbath for doing something on the Sabbath that he created. That's what's going on here. So this story here is revealing that the God who ordained the Sabbath, the God who made the Sabbath as a pattern of his rest after six days of creation, God rested. Then he institutes the Sabbath to mark God's people so that they would be in a constant rhythm that is reorienting them back to the God who created them and forward toward the true and final day of rest. This God is now here in the flesh, dwelling amongst the people, healing on the Sabbath in order to call them to true Sabbath rest. See, this story isn't simply about Jesus demonstrating his power to heal, though, of course, it demonstrates that. Nor is it simply about him challenging the religious leaders in their misguided attempts to keep the Sabbath, though that is an element of it. It is, again, pressing us 
to see what this says about who Jesus is, why he is working in the same way that the Father is working and what he is calling us to, namely to trust in him as the Christ and to look forward to that day of rest. It's like Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their perfect rest in God. That's the only way restoration happens. See, true rest, as we wrap this up, true rest for us is not about a certain amount of time doing something or abstaining from something. True rest is not about a certain activity that we do. True rest is fundamentally about our proximity and intimacy with God. That's what true rest is about. Our proximity and intimacy with God through Christ by the Spirit. That's where we find rest. It is about us in communion with Him. And that's why we keep a Sabbath day in our week so that we constantly reorient ourselves back to that rest. We're reminding ourselves that the only place that we will ever find rest is in Christ. And so while we live in this world where we continue to work, we want to take every opportunity to reorient ourselves back to the rest we have in Christ and looking forward toward the future and final day of rest. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. Jesus heals debilitating sickness. He restores debilitating sickness to new health. He works to call people to true Sabbath rest. And he does this because he is God. He is God in the flesh. Let's, in response to that, take a moment to reflect before we take uh, the Lord's Supper. It's very easy as we take this every week to miss the significance of this, just like it's very easy to miss the significance of this passage where this is saying that the God who created everything and then rested on the seventh day is dwelling on the earth in Palestine 2,000 years ago, calling people to true Sabbath rest, calling people toward that final day of rest. That is astounding that God himself would draw so near to call us into his rest. That is an astounding reality. And likewise, we must not miss the astounding reality of the body and blood of Christ. How is it that we enter into rest? It's through the suffering of our Messiah. That's how we enter into our rest because God himself comes in Jesus to live the life that we should have lived, the life of perfect obedience, to die the death that we deserve but were spared, to then take our sin upon himself, to take our, our weaknesses in that sense, our infirmities, our disease, everything that all of sickness naturally stems from, which is sin, Jesus takes that upon himself and it is punished then and there by God the Father in the cross that we might be spared from it, that we might be set on this unstoppable trajectory toward that future day of rest. But with that comes the warning to strive toward that rest. And taking the bread and the cup every week is part of God's means of strengthening us to actually strive forward to that final day as we think about the suffering of our Messiah, which brings us rest.